Welcome back to Cherry Avenue True Crime Podcast. This one is way more interesting than I thought it would be, and I don't usually inject too much of my opinion on this podcast. I mostly want you to just have the story and the facts as I have found them in my research. But I have a lot of thoughts on this, and I really want to know what all of you think. So stay tuned at the end and how we will start doing an update episode here and there if you guys all like it. The case covered in this episode is The Boston Strangler, The Untold Story, because most people still assume that Albert DeSalvo was the Boston Strangler and murdered all of the 13 women accredited to the Boston Strangler. Albert DeSalvo confessed to 11 murders. However, his confessions have been disputed, and there is a lot to this story. We will be going over the movie, The Boston Strangler, The Untold Story, and then covering the real story and the developments that have happened since then. The movie is The Boston Strangler, The Untold Story. It's a 2008 movie that you can find to stream for free on Tubi TV, starring David Faustino, Andrew Divoff, Costas Sommer, and Corin Nemec. The movie starts with the view of a gated and barbed wire fence surrounding a building. David Faustino is playing Albert DeSalvo. He is an inmate making a phone call on the payphone. Across the screen it reads, Walpole Maximum Security Prison, November 25, 1973. Albert's call is to a former doctor of his. This doctor says he is surprised to hear from him. He tells the doctor that there are some things he would like to get off his chest. I'm sure they have mental health professionals there who can help you, the doctor says. This is different, Albert tells him. I want to tell the truth about the Boston Strangler murders. I see. Look, Albert, let's not do this over the phone, all right? I'll arrange to meet you at 9 a.m. tomorrow morning. I'll set up a private therapy room. We can talk there. That'd be great. Thanks, Doc. Thanks a lot, huh? The movie goes back to 1963. A young couple are walking along on a sidewalk, holding hands and smiling at each other. When they reach the front door of the apartment, they kiss. Then they are making out. Finally, the woman breaks it off and tells her boyfriend it is late. They need to stop for now. He kisses her hand and tells her good night. Inside, while getting ready for bed, the woman is smiling and thinking of their date. In front of the mirror, she says out loud, Mrs. Jennifer Foster. Mrs. Jennifer Mitchum Foster. No, too long. Jennifer Foster. Then, while hanging clothes up in the closet, she is grabbed from behind and carried over to the bed. The man is wearing a ski mask and dressed in black clothing. He chokes her, and she is fighting him. He continues to choke her until she stops moving. Then he stabs her one time. He takes a nylon stocking and ties it around her neck. At a police station, we see a detective and captain talking about the investigation of the strangler. Another detective comes in the office and tells them the lineup is ready. A tearful young woman is looking at the lineup. A shorter man wearing black sunglasses is goofing around toward the one-wave glass. An officer takes his sunglasses and puts him back in line. Captain Parker says, The joker in the sunglasses is Albert DeSalvo. A couple of years ago, he was charged with assault, spent 11 years at Middlesex before they let him go on parole. Detective Marsden asks who the serious one on the end is. A taller and much more menacing-looking man glares through the glass at them. Frank Asarian. I'm really surprised he's out on the streets. He has a record a mile long. The young woman points out Frank Asarian as being the man who attacked her. 
he grabbed me. He grabbed me and he punched me across the face. I can never forget his face. I'll never forget that face. After the lineup, Albert fills out some paperwork and then is allowed to go. Outside, he sees a pretty college student. He follows her. It's bright and sunny outside, and he follows her from a distance. She goes inside a building, and he takes the stairs up while she continues to walk straight ahead. She stops to say hi to someone she knows and to collect her mail. At the end of the hall, she goes up the stairs, and he is coming down. He casually remarks on what a fine day it is. Hey, uh, I got an office here on campus. I've been meaning to introduce myself, but I've been so busy with the agency. Agency? Yeah, things are easing up a bit ever since Jackie took over the White House. They've been making me search for girls who look just like her. She asks if he is in the fashion business, and he tells her he's a modeling scout. I find girls. I measure them, photograph them, and then I introduce them to the agency. You know, now that I have a moment alone with you, you do have the type of build the agency is looking for. What size are you? I'm a four, actually. No friggin' way. You're not a four. Yes, I am. You can measure me and I'll prove it to you. It's a cutthroat industry. Are you sure you can handle that? Don't know if I don't try. He reaches out to shake her hand and she tells him her name is Susan. Susan, why don't you follow me to my office? He starts walking and stops. On second thought, it's probably not a good idea getting measured in a strange man's office. Maybe another time, huh? Well, hey, follow me. My room's just upstairs. He hesitates. Yeah, come on, measure me upstairs. As they are walking, she asks what modeling agency he is from. He tells her it is the black and white modeling agency downtown, and he'll give her the card. How much does it pay if they accept me? $40 an hour. $40 an hour? Are you kidding me? I could pay my entire tuition at that rate. In her apartment, he gets out his tape measure and puts it around her chest. He tells her she is a 34. She tells him she was sure she was a 32. He says, nope, you are a 34. She asks him what her cup size is and how does he measure that? He tells her there is no physical measure for cup size. You have to, you know, by hand. Yeah, she smiles. You're the professional. And she starts to unbutton her blouse. She keeps her bra on. He tells her that to get an actual measurement, he has to feel inside. She tells him, okay, and giggles a little as he cups her breasts. Well, what's my cup size? She asks. He is breathing heavy now, and she gets nervous. She pulls away and secures her bra. Sorry, you're a C-cup, definitely a C-cup. What'd you say your name was? Johnson, Mr. Mr. Johnson. You can call me Gary. And where is the agency? She is upset now. What's the address? It's downtown, 71st Street, 853. Wouldn't that be in the 70s? Yeah, yeah, 753. You know, I'm sure you're a good student and all, but maybe modeling is just not for you. Maybe you're just not cut out for it. She has her shirt back on now and says, Maybe you're not really a modeling agent. I think you should go now. Then she says maybe she should call the cops. He picks up the receiver and he takes it out of her hand and slams it down. When she goes for the door, he blocks her, locks it, and then pushes her back hard. She is crying now. She runs through the bathroom into the bedroom and locks the door. He tells her he knows there is no way out from there. She yells out that her boyfriend will be there any minute. He laughs and tells her that when he was stationed in Germany, he used to hear that one all the time. He tries to get her to open the door. She won't, 
and finally he ends up breaking it down. Two detectives are in a building waiting for an elevator. Across the bottom screen, it says, May 8th, 1963. Detective Marsden arrives, and they tell him what they have. Beverly Salmon's early 20s. This one is not strangled, even though the stocking is up around her neck. She was stabbed in the neck. The killer left her body splayed out for all the world to see. An official arrives, a Mr. Winfield, and asks Detective Marsden when is he going to catch the strangler. Stranglers, Marsden corrects. There's clearly more than one man at work here. He asks him how he can be so sure of that. The M.O. is the same. Sexual assault, strangled by stocking, break-ins, no witnesses, etc., etc. Marsden tells Mr. Winfield that the M.O. isn't that clear. The first five were elderly. The sixth was young and black, Mary Brown. And now Beverly Sammons, it appears, was stabbed to death. Doesn't sound like one particular M.O. Detective Marsden is told that the last thing they need is the public thinking there are multiple murderers running around the city. Next, we see Albert arriving home carrying flowers in a bag. When he gets into his apartment, he is calling to his wife and kids, but no one answers him. A few minutes later, his wife walks in. He asks her where the kids are, and she tells them they're at his parents' house. Doesn't he remember anything? Then they argue about how he says he is at work, but he's really at some bar drinking beer or sleeping with some other woman. She tells him he dragged her all the way across the Atlantic Ocean. He made her promises. She wants to know when is he going to live up to them. September 6th, 1963. The detectives are looking at the body of another woman with her stocking tied around her neck. Marsden says, again, different not. The captain asks if he is sure about that. Positive. The first five were tied into a bow. This one was tied into a knot first, then the bow was tied. He spies a pubic hair on her abdomen and gets tweezers. The captain asks him what is he going to do with that. This is evidence, Captain. I'm going to save it. Maybe we can match it up to the killer under a microscope. Not in my lifetime, the captain says. November 25th, 1963. There's another body. Another stocking tied around the woman's neck. Marsden is asking another detective if they have anything. Nothing, sir. There's not a fingerprint anywhere in this apartment. Witnesses? Not a one. As far as I can tell, nobody heard or saw anything. January 4th, 1964. A man breaks into a woman's apartment and attacks her while she is getting ready to go out. He is wearing a stocking over his face. He tells her to be quiet or he will tear out her tongue, and she will never speak again. He tells her he wasn't intending on being so rough and all, but seeing as she's a fighter, he will have to tie up her hands. She resists and breaks free. She swings a lamp at him, but he grabs it and tosses it aside. He throws her to the floor, and while she's on her stomach, he gets on top of her and wraps a stocking around her neck. He turns her over and crosses the stocking around her. He tells her angrily that he was going to make love to her. He pulls the stocking tighter and tighter until she stops moving. He brushes hair from her motionless face and says, If you only just behaved. The next morning, Marsden and another detective are looking the scene over. Matches the M.O., but on close inspection, there are some incongruities, one detective says. Like what? Marsden asks. She was strangled with the stocking, all right, but that bow is not tied like we'd expect. It's a copycat, Marsden agrees. The first five were killed by the same guy. Sophie Clark and this girl were killed by jackoffs who actually read the paper. Later that night, Marsden is sitting on his front porch with a transistor radio. 
He's drinking a beer and listening to a radio program asking callers to call in about the strangler. Many call in and want to know what they are doing to catch this guy. He is strangling women all over town. The list is just despicable. The announcer goes over it. Anna Slessers, 55 years old, first to die. She was strangled with the cord of her bathrobe on June 14, 1962. A nylon stocking was used to kill 68-year-old Nina Nicole on June 30th. Helen Blake, age 65, was found the same day a stocking... The radio clicks off. Marsden's wife is standing there in an evening dress. He asks her how the party was, and she tells him it would have been a lot better if he had been there. He talks to her about how he knows there is more than one killer, but no one really wants to listen to him. He tells her how the M.O. changed drastically between Jane Sullivan and Sophie Parker. Jane was 67, and Sophie was 19. His wife says, They were all strangled, though, weren't they? He tells her he is sure the first five were done by the same man, but he is also sure that he stopped. The last two were copycats. The next day at work, Detective Marsden is gathered in a meeting room with a bunch of detectives and the captain. They are informed that, as they know, there have been 12 strangler murders with no leads. It is announced that as of that day, a new bureau will be investigating these murders. It will be called the Strangler Bureau. Every department will be working together, providing the bureau with every shred of evidence, witness testimony, etc. The head of the new bureau is Fred Addison. This causes some commotion, as they like Addison, but they don't think he has the detective policing experience. Then they are informed that also leading the task force are the following. Detective Philip Bloom, Special Officer John Marsden of the Boston State Police, and Andrew Tunney of the Mass State. There will also be a medical advisory made up of medical experts from around the state. The last announcement is that the press will be informed of a $10,000 reward for any information leading to the capture of the Strangler. It's now nighttime and Albert is driving. His wife and another couple are in the car, and they are going out. A police car puts on the lights and siren, and Albert thinks it's for him. He speeds up the car and swings wildly, not realizing he is now going down a one-way road. Everyone in the car is screaming at him. He is trying to find a way to get off that road when he crashes the car. He is scared as they all get out of the car except him. He tells them they are after him. Please don't leave him. His brother Mike asks, what did he do? And Albert says, it's bad shit. Then police are there, and they are telling him to turn off the car and come out with his hands up. The next scene is at the Bridgewater Mental Institution, February 4th, 1964. Albert is put in a room with another man. His roommate Frank realizes that he knows him from a lineup they were in together. In that lineup, Albert was the Joker, he says, and the girl picked him, Frank, out of the lineup. Frank is a big guy, much bigger than Albert. Albert asks what Frank is in for. I shot a guy six times in the head, point blank. Before that, I stabbed him five times. The movie flashes back to Frank pulling his car up in front of a white building, the County Stop store. He checks his gun is loaded. He sees a woman and her daughter coming out. He waits until they pass, and he goes in. As the women are about to leave in their car, a man comes out of the store and falls to the ground. The daughter points out that the man is bleeding. Then Frank comes out with a gun pointed at the man. He tells him to get to his knees and beg for his life, which the man does. Then Frank tells him, beggars can't be choosers, and he starts shooting him, six times in total. The mom is trying to start the car, but it's not starting. The mom says, lock the doors. 
Frank starts walking toward them, and they are screaming. He points the gun at the mom, then he points it at the daughter, and she ducks down in her seat. Suddenly the car starts, and they take off. Frank tells Albert that the clerk had tried to be a hero. All he was doing was robbing the store, but the clerk wouldn't open the register. Frank asks him if he ever killed anybody. No, not really. Well, there was this one woman, Albert says. I scared her real bad, and I think she had a heart attack. I mean, I didn't call an ambulance or anything, so I figured I killed her. That's why they locked you up? No, Albert says. I like the broads, you know? On another day, a sharp-dressed, attractive man is heading down the hallway to meet Frank and Albert. Albert already knows him and introduces him as Mr. Whitmore. Frank tells Mr. Whitmore that Albert here is about to be infamous, famous the world over, soon to be a wealthy man, Albert DeSalvo. Mr. Whitmore looks dubious. This is the Boston Strangler? They all sit down, and Mr. Whitmore says to Albert, You know, the city has spent millions of dollars trying to track you down. The DA created a special task force just for that purpose. Three years they have been looking for you. Not a trace. It's pretty impressive. Sure is, Frank says. Albert is like a cat. He can sneak in and out of any apartment without being noticed. No witnesses ever. Then why confess? Whitmore asks. Family man, wife, kids, a dog, probably even a goldfish. No one even suspected you. I guess you could say it was a career move, Albert says. Ha, a career move. He looks sideways at Frank. Look, Mr. Whitmore, we got client attorney privileges here, right? Frank asks. Whitmore tells him he knows how it goes, guaranteed confidential. Frank and Albert tell them that they have it all worked out how to split the money, the reward. Albert says he will plead insanity and get to live out his years in a hospital, and that his family and Frank's family will split the money. Frank points out that he, Whitmore, will be a world-famous litigator. Whitmore agrees to represent Del Salvo, but on one condition. If they get the reward money, they have to split it three ways. He is doing this for free, and it will be a lot of work. They talk it around and finally agree to it. At the police station, an officer goes in to see Detective Marsden. You know Albert DeSalvo? Yeah, sure I do, Marsden says. Measuring man, green man, why? What's up? Albert DeSalvo confessed to being the Boston Strangler. He confessed to what? The Boston Strangler. Isn't that great? He confessed. We got our man. That's it. It's over. Albert's brother Mike and his wife are at the prison to visit him. Albert has brought Frank with him, and his brother questions this, saying he thought it, this was a family meeting. Albert tells him Frank is his family inside. They all sit down, and Mike says he just doesn't get it. He doesn't know what to say. Albert tells him there's nothing to say. He's made some mistakes. His sister-in-law, Sandra, can't take it. Some mistakes? You call killing innocent women mistakes? Listen, Albert, Mike says. We just don't know how or when this all happened. I know you've got your problems with the broads and all, but murder? He tells them there's a lot to the story that he isn't telling them. It's complicated. What I can say, though, is I'm going to make a whole lot of money off this deal, and I'm already pretty famous, right? You're not famous, Albert, Sandra says. You're infamous. It's different. Albert tells her any sort of fame is right by him. His brother repeats that he just doesn't get it. There's reward money, Albert tells him. Frank here is going to collect it. 
There's going to be television interviews. There's going to be book deals. I even got a call about a movie. Mike is looking upset. No, listen. They want to make a friggin' movie about me. And guess who is going to play me? Tony friggin' Curtis. This is crazy, Mike says. You kill people and all you can think about is being a movie star? The way we are looking at it is I'm already going to be in jail for life for other crimes. Why not make the best out of it? Frank has come up with this really good plan for my incarceration. Tell him, Frank. Go ahead. Well, uh, we decided with our lawyer, Stuart Whitmore, to go for an insanity plea. Mr. Whitmore made a plea with the Attorney General that nothing Albert says about the Boston Strangler case can be used against him. I mean, they already got him in the court of public opinion anyway, so why bother trying him in court? So they are going to try him for the Green Man offenses. Mike interrupts Frank and asks Albert, what is going on? Is Mr. Asarian here your legal representation? Albert tells him Frank is a smart guy. He asks Mike just to let him speak. As I was saying, Mr. Whitmore is going to suggest to the jury that Albert is completely insane, and instead of going to Walpole, he's going to a country club run by the state. It's brilliant, Albert says. It's friggin' brilliant. Mike tries to reason with him, but Albert is convinced of the plan. Mike finally just has to say goodbye, and he tells Albert he will visit him every week. Later that night, Frank has Albert studying the details of the Boston Strangler murders. Albert tells Frank he has a photographic memory, and Frank gets really excited and tells him he is going to know this better than the murderer himself. He gives Albert article after article and picture after picture to look at and memorize. The head of the Strangler Task Force, Fred Addison, arrives in prison to meet with DeSalvo. He brings out a tape recorder and tells Albert that for the record, they are going to record his confession. He first asks about Anna Slessers when he met her. Albert says he wouldn't say he actually met her and smiles. She was just a pretty girl, you know. Pretty girl, he asks, but Anna Slessers was 55. Uh, yeah, Albert says, but she was a real looker for 55. I was hiding in the closet, and I watched her walk inside. Usually I'm hiding in the bedroom or something, but this time I was hiding in the foyer closet, and she was uh, she was holding a bag from Gimbel's. Well, that's strange, Fred says, because I'm sure it was a bag of groceries. Yeah, that's right, Albert corrects. Yeah, it was a bag of groceries. So after she finished putting the food and stuff away, I stayed in the closet. You do remember that you killed her in the bedroom, Fred tells him. You're talking about Anna Slessers, right? Fred nods. Right, yeah, Albert says. So she walked into the bedroom, and I followed her very quietly. Albert tells him about surprising her and strangling her on the bed. So when did you use the stocking to strangle her? Where did you get that? See, now you're trying to trick me, Mr. Addison. I remember this one very clearly. So I took the tie to the robe. I wrapped it around her neck, and I'm pulling on it. She's fighting and fighting me, right? I mean, she even scratched me with her nails. It was terrible. But, I mean, it was necessary, and... Okay, that's a lot of information. Fred stops him. We might have to go back a few steps, though, just to make sure we got it all right. I mean, we got it all. You know how judges are. Addison stops the recording. So let's take a step back. You said on the night of Slusser's murder, you hid in the closet, and then you followed her into the bedroom. Is that right? That's exactly what happened. The movie cuts over to an image of the outside of the prison. Across the bottom of the screen, it reads, January 19, 1967. Inside, Albert is leaning against the window, looking out. His lawyer, Stuart Whitmore, is just behind him, and he sighs heavily. 
The appeal is already in motion, Whitmore tells him. Did you see the faces on those jurors? They hated me. They want to see me fry. They sent me right to the chair. We'll appeal it. Whitmore sits down. It's just everybody is all in a frenzy about the strangler. Whitmore lights a cigarette. At least you'll be with Frank at Walpole. Frank's going to the electric chair and you know it. That's on appeal too. Look, Albert, you're still going to get your money. You're going to get your book deal, your movie deal. All of that is still coming through. But Walpole, they'll fucking kill me there. I'm going to die there. Albert, this is your life. You did this, not me, not anyone else. I've done everything that I could, everything. Do you want me to appeal the verdict? I don't know. Does Frank think I should? For God's sakes, for once, forget about Frank. I'm your attorney. Listen to me. We'll appeal this thing and get you in an institution, okay? Is that what you want? Yeah, maybe you're right. Detective Marsden is driving and listening to the news announcement on the radio. Albert Henry DeSalvo, the 35-year-old mental patient who says he murdered 13 women as the Boston Strangler, was found guilty tonight of armed robbery, assault, and sex offenses involving four women. He was sentenced to life imprisonment. DeSalvo's lawyer, who asked a jury of 12 men to find the defendant not guilty by reason of insanity, told newsmen bitterly, Massachusetts has burned another witch. No fault of the juries, of course. It's the fault of the law. His case was built on the argument that DeSalvo was a schizophrenic personality. Although the 13 murders committed in the Boston area from mid-1962 to early 1964 were not a part of his trial, DeSalvo's lawyer tried to inject testimony relating to them. He said he felt those crimes were so monstrous that the jury must agree that his client was insane. But the court refused to permit testimony relating to the stranglings. DeSalvo, a former MP in the military and former middleweight boxing champion of the armed forces in Germany, stood erect and won as the jury foreman reported him guilty on each count of a 10-count indictment. The jury deliberated three hours. The movie moves ahead in time. Walpole Maximum Security Prison, November 24, 1973. While Frank and Albert are no longer roomies, Frank is able to pull some weight and get a private visit with Albert in his cell. Albert tells Frank that he can't take any more. Just can't take no more and it's time. Six years is enough time. I'm a changed man, you know. I ain't the same man I used to be. I help the old people now. I work in the infirmary. I haven't had a drink since I broke out of Bridgewater. Now what's the difference if I tell the real story now? What's the difference if I tell them I ain't the Boston Strangler? That I never was the Boston Strangler? I don't need any fame anymore, and I ain't seen a dime from any of this mess. Maybe if I tell the truth, my family will talk to me, you know? Frank leans closer to Albert. You can't say nothing, nothing to nobody, and that's for the rest of your life. But why, Frank? Why? What's the difference? Because I'm telling you not to. I'm in this too, you know. I don't want no problems, no press, no nothing. There's no sense in rehashing the past. In my book, it's over. You're telling me like you got something you don't want me to know, Frank. You hiding something? Shut up, boy, before I grab your head and bust it against those bars. Sounds like you got a secret. Sounds like you've been holding on to something for all these years. Frank gives a dry chuckle and shakes his head. I'm done talking. I've said enough. He grabs Albert by the front of the shirt, but lets go right away and stands up. At the cell door, he says back to Albert, you can do with it whatever the fuck you want. The next morning, November 25th, Albert makes the call that was shown at the beginning of the movie. The one to Dr. Arlen where he tells him that he wants to tell the truth about the Boston Strangler murders. 
Dr. Arlen tells him he doesn't want to do this over the phone. He tells him he will arrange to meet him the next day at 9 a.m. He'll set up a private therapy room and they can talk there. Albert tells him that is great and thanks him. Later that night, we see two inmates walking together. One of them has sheets and blankets in his arms. They pass by Frank's cell and open the blanket so Frank can put a knife in the middle, hidden. They go into Albert's cell. One of them covers his mouth and the other one repeatedly stabs him. The next morning, Dr. Arlen is lifting the sheet off of Albert DeSalvo's dead body. He looks at him and then covers him back up. We then see Detective Marsden in his office listening to the radio. Albert H. DeSalvo, who became known as the Boston Strangler, was found stabbed to death at Walpole State Prison this morning. The prison authorities said that 40-year-old inmate's body was discovered in his cell bed of the prison hospital wing at 7 a.m. DeSalvo, who worked as an orderly in the hospital, was said to have died of multiple stab wounds. The county district attorney said that a possible suspect has been questioned, but no arrests have been made. Although DeSalvo confessed to the details of the slayings of 13 women from the Boston area to a psychiatrist and became widely known as the Boston Strangler, the news fades off from there. The screen goes dark, then words appear. In 2001, the Strangler's last victim was exhumed in a search for evidence, more specifically to search for human samples containing DNA. DNA from two different individuals was found in her fingernails and undergarments, Neither of these individuals was Albert DeSalvo. The Boston Strangler case has never been solved, and no one has been tried for the murders. To this day, the investigation is still open. Well, this was all new to me. I hadn't gone down a Boston Strangler rabbit hole before, but after this movie, I certainly did. The cellmate who Albert DeSalvo supposedly confessed to was George Nassar, not Frank Asarian, as in the movie. Also, DeSalvo's lawyer in real life was the now-famous F. Lee Bailey. George Nassa really did kill a man in front of a woman and her daughter. He brutally murdered a Texaco station owner by the name of Irvin Hilton, and that is what landed him bunked up with DeSalvo. Nassa's first killing was when he was just 16. He and two friends went on a robbery spree, and one of the shop owners, Dominic Kermel, was trying to hit them with a Coke bottle, defending himself. George pulled a revolver from his coat and shot four times. Mr. Kermel died three hours later. Nassar got parole early in 1961. The Boston Strangler murders began in 1962. George Nassar is still alive as the date of this research and writing. Nassar had an appeal that was denied by the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court as recently as 2008. He was born in 1932, so he would now be 89. There are 13 victims attributed to the Boston Strangler murders. They were all women and ranged from the age 19 to 85. Anna Slessers, 56, was sexually assaulted with an unknown object and strangled with the belt on her bathrobe. She was found on June 14, 1962, in her apartment. Mary Mullen, 85, died from a heart attack, found on June 28, 1962, in her apartment. Nina Nichols, 68, was sexually assaulted and strangled with her nylon stockings, found June 30, 1962, in her home. Helen Blake, 65, was sexually assaulted and strangled with her nylon stockings, found on June 30, 1962, in her home. Ida Erga, 74, sexually assaulted and strangled, found on August 19, 1962, in her apartment. Jane Sullivan, 67, sexually assaulted and strangled with her nylon stockings, 
found on August 21, 1962, in her home. Sophie Clark, 20, sexually assaulted and strangled with her nylon stockings, found on December 5, 1962, in her apartment. Patricia Bissett, 22, strangled with her nylon stockings, found on December 31, 1962, in her home. Marianne Brown, 69, was raped, strangled, beaten, and stabbed, found on March 6, 1963, in her apartment. Beverly Sammons, 26, stabbed to death, found on May 6, 1963, in her home. Marie Corbin, 58, raped and strangled with her nylon stockings, found on September 8, 1963, in her home. Joanne Graff, 22, strangled with her nylon stockings, found on November 23, 1963, in her apartment. And Mary Sullivan, 19, sexually assaulted and strangled with nylon stockings, found on January 4, 1964, in her apartment. In 1968, Dr. Ames Roby, medical director of Bridgewater State Hospital, insisted that DeSalvo was not the Boston Strangler. He said the prisoner was a very clever, very smooth, compulsive confessor who desperately needed to be recognized. George W. Harrison, a former fellow inmate of DeSalvo's, claimed to have overheard another convict coaching DeSalvo about details of the strangling murders. DeSalvo's attorney, F. Lee Bailey, believed that his client was the killer and described the case in his 1971 book, The Defense Never Rests. Bailey was also involved with other notable clients, including Sam Shepard and Patty Hearst. He was also a member of the defense team for O.J. Simpson. Susan Kelly, author of the 1996 book, The Boston Stranglers, researched the files of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts Strangler Bureau. She argues that the murders were the work of several killers rather than a single individual. Former FBI Special Agent John E. Douglas said he doubted that DeSalvo was the Boston Strangler. In his book, The Cases That Haunt Us, he identified DeSalvo as a power-assurance-motivated rapist. He said that such a rapist is unlikely to kill in the manner of the crimes attributed to the Boston Strangler. A power-assurance-motivated rapist would, however, be prone to taking credit. Former FBI profiler Robert Ressler said in regards to the Boston Strangler murders, You're putting together so many different patterns that it's inconceivable behaviorally that these could fit one individual. The movie we just covered was a 2008 movie. There were developments in 2013 using DNA evidence that was found at the crime scene. It is said to be a match to Albert DeSalvo, so he is almost certainly the killer of at least one of the Boston Strangler murders, that of Mary Sullivan. Lots of articles came out after this saying, solved once and for all, and that kind of thing. DeSalvo was the Boston Strangler. But it was only for one of the murders that they were able to say, for reasons of DNA, that he was definitively the killer. The rest we do not know for sure. Albert DeSalvo was not a good guy. Of course he wasn't. He used various ruses to get into rooms alone with women, and then he brutally raped them. He was arrested and sent to prison for a series of these brutal rapes, and there could have been more that we don't know about. And now we know he was most likely guilty of at least one of the murders. The movie itself seems to point towards Frank Asarian ordering the killing of Albert DeSavo, and possibly because maybe he had something to do with some of the Boston Strangler murders. Now, if he had, why would he care about it getting out? You know, some ask, why would he care? Why would he care about people knowing? I mean, he was going to be in prison for life anyway. 
Well, possibly he could have gotten the death penalty um, if they tried him for any of those. Also, maybe because of some type of prison cred. You know how they say inmates don't like child molesters and rapists? Well, the Strangler was a rapist and he killed women. Possibly he didn't want that in prison for him to be noted as a rapist and woman killer. There's another theory that maybe Nassar got some special treatment because he took DeSalvo's confession and wrapped the case up for them. Seems a little bit far-fetched and a bit of a conspiracy theory, but who knows. Some things I would have called far-fetched have come up in the news in recent years as being very true. So who knows? Possibly Frank, in real life George Nassar, had nothing to do with any of it except hearing Albert's confession and possibly setting up the plan to collect the reward money. The M.O.s in the murders are really varied, too. Listen to this. Some of the women were put on display in seemingly what was meant to shock, while others were covered up with blankets. Some were stabbed, others were not. Most had bows tied around their necks, but they were not all alike. The first was strangled with the belt from her robe, the second with a nylon stocking, the third had both her bra and a nylon stocking tied around her neck, The fourth was manually strangled. The fifth was strangled with her stockings and her face submerged in her bathtub. The seventh was strangled on her bed, but her body was covered to her chin with a blanket. The eighth had been stabbed 22 times and then a stocking tied around her neck. The ninth was strangled. The tenth was strangled, but bite marks were also found on her breasts. And the eleventh was strangled with a scarf. AllThat'sInteresting.com has an interview on their site with George Nassar about DeSalvo, and they even ask him if he was the Boston Strangler, and he denies it. He was 86 at the time of the interview and battling cancer. You might want to check that out. He denies being the Strangler and says that DeSalvo confessed to him. DeSalvo's brother has said that Albert would not say anything unless George approved it. The Green Man was the name given to the rapist who wore green clothing during his attacks. The measuring man was a man who told women he was a modeling scout and would ask to measure them for the agency, but would then end up groping them. DeSalvo was both the measuring man and the green man. In 1973, DeSalvo was found stabbed to death in his cell. His killer or killers were never identified. No other DNA evidence is said to be available to test for the other 12 murders. It is possible that DeSalvo was responsible for all of them, But it's also possible there was at least one other, possibly more than one other, murderer. So now you can leave a voicemail for me anytime you want. Two ways to do it. You can go to the website cherryavenuetruecrime.com and click on the button that says send voicemail. Or you can go directly to speakpipe.com slash cherryavenue and leave the message there. Both ways go directly to me. I'll put the links to both of those on the show notes. Your voicemail may be featured in an upcoming episode, so leave your name or don't leave your name. Either is fine with me. Stay tuned after the music to hear the bonus movie names. The bonus movie names for this episode are a little bit different. Because Halloween is coming up, I thought I'd give you two scary movies that you can stream. Now, usually I tell you a bonus movie name of a movie that was actually based on real events, a based on a true story movie. However, in this case, they are both loosely based on true crime. The first one is more loosely than the other. Wolf Creek is a 2005 movie starring John Jarrett, 
Nathan Phillips and Cassandra McGrath. We have two descriptions of this movie for you. The first one is, Wolf Creek is not directly based on a true story. Although a title at the start says, based on actual events, it was suggested partly by the gruesome details of the backpacker murders committed by Ivan Milat in the 1990s. But these murders were committed in a state forest near Sydney. And the second one is, just when you thought it was safe to go hiking in the bushes again, along comes Mick Taylor. Christy, Ben, and Liz are three pals in their 20s who set out to hike through the scenic Wolf Creek National Park in the Australian Outback. The trouble begins when they get back only to find that their car won't start. The trio think they have a way out when they run into a local bushman named Mick Taylor. Wait until you get a load of what Mick has in store for them. Their troubles have just begun. And the other movie is The Town That Dreaded Sundown. It's a 1976 movie loosely based on the Texarkana Phantom Killings. The story of a hooded berserk killer who terrorized the border town of Texarkana, Arkansas in 1946, leaving no fewer than five murder victims in his wake. He was never caught. Based on one of America's most baffling murder cases. I covered the real story of the Texarkana Phantom and the investigation in a previous episode. Thank you for listening. Leave me a voicemail regarding the Boston Strangler case or another previous case we have covered. Until next time, please be safe. The sources for today's episode will be listed in the show notes, and they are as follows. Boston Strangler case solved 50 years later, abcnewsgo.com. F. Lee Bailey Wikipedia, Boston Strangler Wikipedia, Boston Strangler, a serial killer who probably never got caught, anomalyalien.com, Albert DeSalvo, the man who confessed to killing Albert DeSalvo, the man who confessed to being the Boston Strangler, allthatsinteresting.com. The Conviction of Albert DeSalvo, virtualbostonwordpress.com. The Boston Strangler Crime Museum, 